You want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We'll be looking at a passage in just a moment in Matthew chapter 27. It's good to see everyone out this evening once more. It's been a really beautiful day this entire day. It's kind of frustrating because all day yesterday it just didn't seem like it was ever going to get sunny again. But it's good to see everyone. Um, it was good to have family in town and to be able to listen to Jr. preach again. But um, I'll tell you what, after someone like Jr. comes up and preaches, it, it's very unfortunate to have to follow him uh, in the evening service. And some of you are saying, yeah, we know. <laughs> but uh, hey, that's not funny. <laughs> uh, but, but it is really good to, to be with you all. And uh, it was, I think it's so helpful to listen to men who have been preaching for years, who have so many experience, experiences to talk about as, as he explained the scripture, what it meant to be a servant. I just commend that lesson to you. If you weren't here this morning by chance and you didn't get to listen to that, it's, I, it's already on the YouTube page actually, so you can listen to it there. It's a very good uh, lesson and I would just commend it to you. Uh, I want to continue tonight by just bringing our thoughts back to Jesus starting where, where really J.R. started this morning, but in, in a different place. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Three separate things that he says someone must do to be a disciple. Now, if, if when we talk about picking up our own cross, that is necessary, and we need to focus on that on a daily basis, because it is a daily Necessity, and and it is something that we need to continually, you know, re-examine just to make sure: Am I really doing this? Am I really following after Him the way He expects me to? Sometimes I think we are greatly hindered, not because we forget that we have to pick up our cross daily, not because we forget of of even all the things that that Jesus has done for us, but really, maybe it's just that we have thought about it time and time again, it's almost become just commonplace. I know what happened at the cross. It's just become commonplace. I know the kind of suffering that Jesus went through. Sometimes I think it would behoove us to like that hymn we just sung through, and I appreciate Brother Derek leading us in that, Lead Me to Calvary. It's helpful to remember the suffering and the pain. It's helpful to remember what exact, exactly was accomplished at the cross, the reason why the cross had to happen at Calvary. And, and so what I want to do is, is start by going back to what happened there, looking at exactly what the reasons were for that, why Jesus had to die, why, why he was willing to die for us, and then make some applications at the end as we just ask another question of how are we truly reflecting Christ's sacrifice in our life, or, or are we, or are we taking it for granted? And so, first of all, I just want to begin, as I said just a moment ago, what exactly happened here? And the reason, the reason we're even going through this again is because I know that sometimes it seems like, well, we already know what happened, so it's just review, but I don't want it to just be only a review here. I really want to think about the weight and the magnitude of this scene and the passages that we're going to look at, I hope, are, are going to really make this clear of, of why this is so important. Because ultimately, when you look at the crucifixion, Jesus of Nazareth was not the only one to die in this way. He just wasn't. There were several, several other people, several people that we don't even have, have the names of 
who died by a crucifixion. But <laughs> when you come to this scene in Matthew chapter 27, this isn't the death of just some guy. Who is Jesus? But God manifested in the flesh. And this is the death of God. This is the death of the one who made you and me. And now when you put it in those terms, it's pretty shocking. When you put it in those terms, it's absurd. And it's supposed to be. In Matthew 27, verse 54, as we're going to read in a moment, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, the same statement is made. Surely, surely this was the Son of God. Luke goes another step later on and says, surely this man is innocent or was innocent. But even in the moment of his death, there was much clarity in who this was. It wasn't vague even then. And so when we come to this or when we are thinking back to what Jesus has done for us, we got to make sure that we don't let this become commonplace in our minds. This is the darkest day in all of history. This is the worst thing that has ever happened by any human being. This is the worst deed done. This is the darkest hour. This is the most violent and the most hateful and the most bitter act ever committed by human, by humankind rather. What sin has done to our God and the Almighty, our Creator. Now, you, we already kind of talked about Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we kind of just vaguely mentioned this uh, portion in, in the beginning of chapter 2. It's even in the bulletin, so I'm not going to go through that and read through it. You can just uh, read through the bulletin and hearken back to the thoughts from the class earlier. But, but Jesus, what did He do? It wasn't that He just... He just, you know, for, it wasn't just merely for a moment, he's just not in heaven. It's, it's almost like a vacation. Clearly, that's not what's happening. I've used this example before, but can you imagine the transformation that had to occur there from Jesus in heaven to Jesus almost confined by human flesh? I remember a preacher talking about that passage, and he said, have you ever looked at a hermit crab in his cage, in a small, tiny cage, and constantly retreating into his shell and looked at that and how cramped that situation is and think, wow, I would love to trade places with him. No, no. And how much more so when you think about God having to live as a human. Almighty and powerful, pure God having to be among really a corrupt people. And having to engage with the people that are constantly belittling him, constantly taking his name in vain in many ways and forms. That, what an incredible transformation, and a transformation that Jesus went through specifically for you and me. In John chapter 1, he kind of makes this a little bit more clear. As he begins the chapter, he talks about the Word which was with God and was God, but then you skip down <clears throat> John chapter 1 and verse 14. Skipping down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And you could look at other passages like John chapter 14 where Jesus said, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. <laughs> because, because I and the Father are one. And I do the deeds of my Father. I only do and, 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 and act by His initiative, not, on, not by my own. And, and so God 
becomes flesh. And John says, essentially, they should have recognized it. Who? His, own, his very people. The very people that he created. The crown jewel of his creation. We should have recognized him. But then you go to other passages back over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 51. Look at what happens here. In verse 51 of Matthew chapter 27, beginning, it says, <clears throat> And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. This is pretty intense. What just occurred? Jesus just gave up his spirit. The death. Of God. Verse 52, the tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. So even it's not just some random Jews that all of a sudden understood what they have done. This is a Gentile. This is a centurion who says, just looking around at the evidence, says this absolutely was who he said he was. I wanted to go through that passage. You could look at uh, other uh, maybe accounts of this. But specifically in this passage, I think this is incredible because, because even creation recognizes who this man is and what has just occurred. This was God manifested in the flesh and it cries out. At his death. Isn't that powerful? <laughs> Isn't that terrifying? Now, what is even worse is with all of that being said, even the earth cries out when, when Jesus dies. But when you get back to John chapter 1 and verses 10 through 11, it says, even though he is the one that created us, even though he is the one, without him nothing would be, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. <laughs> It should have been, of course we're going to take him in because he is the very depiction of the law. He is the very, he is the very substance of God. But they're the ones that put him to death. They are the ones who gave this false witness against him so that he could no longer live. And so even though everything else completely understands that Jesus was God manifests in the flesh, the very Son of God, and understands the weight, the gravity of the situation at the crucifixion. The people who cry out for his blood are so animous and vehement that in their bloodlust, they refuse to accept it. To the point where even Gentiles are understanding this. Now later in Acts chapter 2, beautifully we see that there's a change of heart. Not in everyone, but in some. In many. Now, but with all that being said, when you think about this, what exactly happens here, by all accounts, this is completely absurd. It should be the other way around. And this brings us to the next question. So if this is the case, this should be switched. Why did Christ have to die? Why did this happen? Why did it have to happen in this way? Well, frankly, because of you, because of me. I, and the reason I word it in this way, I don't, want, I, I don't want us to go, well, of course, he died for everybody. We need to think about it in terms, not yes, he did die for everybody, but also simply because of your lack of will, because of my lack of resolve, because of my lack of dedication to God. Over in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, <clears throat> 
Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 24. Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 24, it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would suffer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, what has he been manifested for? To put away sin. Whose sin is he talking about? When we read through that passage, what, what injustice it is when we just toss that away and say, well, he just did it for everybody. And we don't make the internal application we don't feel the guilt and the sorrow behind he was up there specifically because of my sin that needs to hit us we need to feel the guilt there and we need to remember the guilt there if we already have become christians i think that's a part of picking up our cross daily and following after him understanding that that death was completely undeserved and it was because of me Because that's the death that I was supposed to take. But remember, this is why it says in Hebrews chapter 9, he was manifested. He didn't didn't come to earth to live like Solomon, who reigned over the wealthiest and the most vast kingdom over all the earth, who, who all the other kingdoms were paying tribute to in a very physical, material way. That's not what he that's not what's being talked about here. That would have been quite nice, wouldn't it? That would have been very comfortable. That would have been luxurious. But that's not what Christ came to earth for. What is the sole reason he came to earth for? To die. To die painfully. To suffer. That, again, should just add on to the shock of this story. He puts on mortality. The eternal, the only being that's ever truly been eternal, meaning that he doesn't have a beginning, he does not have an end, he has always just been. The eternal being puts on this restriction and limitation of life on earth, specifically to die for us. Now this is not a perfect parallel, I understand that, but can, can you imagine someone has spent all of their money on just, on just silly things? Things that make no sense, childish things, immature things, things that you would never spend your money on, things that you just find revolting on sinful things. Can you imagine somebody putting themselves into a debtor's position, begging, begging for mercy, begging for grace? That's just obviously not deserved. What what does that plea for pardon mean? It means nothing in the grand scheme of things, especially when you look on on the earthly plane. When you, look, when you look at it from, from, from our point of view, now take that a step further. Would you look at somebody who has put themselves deliberately and willfully into those positions because of their maybe just lack of, of foresight, lack of resolve, just lack of, of keeping themselves from instant pleasures? Would you be willing then to step into that debtor's shoes? Not to, not to pay, pay the fine. Not to just say, I'm going to start paying this off. I'm going to deal with this. But... And just be done with it forevermore, but more so to take his place in the consequences of failure, to pay. Now, again, this isn't a perfect parallel because Jesus essentially does, he does pay that debt. But before you even get there, 
What is, in, what is incredible is the fact that Jesus, of course he's going to pay the debt by his perfect life, but he comes to earth knowing that his sole purpose is to take on the consequences. We cannot forget this point because I think that when we take this for granted, it will show and it will hinder greatly our ability to pick up our own cross and follow after him. So why did he have to die? It was because of me. Not only that, but as we've already indicated, to take our place, to take the place of death that was deserved on us. You could look at Isaiah chapter 53, what God says there about this suffering servant that's coming, that's going to take that, all of the, the sins and the iniquities of others, and he's going to bear the penalty. Now, we, wanna, we want to be very specific about what we mean here. There are some people that would say, well, he takes on the guilt. No, he doesn't take on the guilt. He takes on the penalty of the guilty. There's a big difference. Because if a guilty man died for another guilty man, what does that mean? All that, all that guilty man can pay for is his own sins, is his own downfalls. He can't do anything for someone else who's in the exact same position. But the one who is truly innocent... The one who never has had any downfalls, who has never sinned, who has never corrupted themselves. Now he, he can do a lot more than just simply pay the fine. He can pay the fine. He can pay that debt of everyone. In First Peter chapter two, a very familiar passage. First Peter chapter two. We won't read verses twenty-one through twenty-four, but you just, I think, have that completion of Isaiah fifty-three. Peter says, "And and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed." It's it's just the same language. In chapter three, in verse eighteen, he he, he just emphasizes this fact that the just died for the unjust. Now turn back to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. Ultimately, what I want us to understand and take away from this of why Jesus had to die, pure and perfect Jesus had to suffer. Ultimately, it's because this was the only thing that could satisfy the wrath of God against sin. The, when, especially when it comes to earthly debts in our culture, there's a lot of different ways that we can start paying things off. We can get a job and start paying off debt that we've accrued. We can start uh, p potentially, you know, finding ways to maybe <laughs> cut corners with a credit card debt that we have and, and, you know, getting rid of some of that debt time by time with community service, things like that, whatever. There's a lot of different things that we can figure out to do to slowly work off the, the debt that we've accrued. But when you look at this debt that we have accrued, there's not many ways that we can get rid of it. There's not many ways that we can clean ourselves. There's not many ways that we can do away with the consequence ultimately of death. The only thing that was going to satisfy is the death of Jesus. This really puts it into perspective the weight and gravity of our sin. What have you done? You have caused God that kind of pain. I have caused God that kind of suffering. If that does not touch you, where is your mind? If it does not affect you that your sin, that my sin, has caused God to have to feel that kind of pain, think back to the garden that Jesus was in agony. <laughs> when would you think God would be in agony? Why should he ever have to feel that? that? That is because of me and you. 
And we cannot forget that and we can't trivialize that fact. Romans chapter 3 in verse 25, it says, talking about Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time is so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He couldn't just leave all the sins before time and afterward unpaid for. Because guess what? That leaves us in limbo. We, we have no shot. We have no hope. But Jesus is how he pays that. Jesus is how we have that relationship once more. Now, when you look at the word propitiation, it's not a word that we use very often. Um, it, it's not a word that generally is in the, the average Joe's, and it's especially not my common vernacular throughout the daily. So, so what does that mean when he talks about propitiation? Understand that it does have to do with appeasing wrath. A lot of times when people think about God, they almost think about him in such a way as, oh, God doesn't get angry ever. God does not feel uh, negative emotions like, like agony, like Jesus did in the garden. He doesn't get angry. Sure, he gets disappointed, but nothing really angers him. One, you have not read the Bible because, because just all throughout, God makes clear his people makes him angry when they do the things that make them look like the rest of the nations, that make them look like idolaters. So, so just from the very start, you don't know what the Bible says, what God's word really says. But you move past that. Our sins have made God angry. And what that means is at the cross, that anger was poured out on, on him. That anger was poured out on shoulders that did not deserve that weight. Why does God do that for us, though? Ultimately, you can go back to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Because he loved us, though we were enemies, he wanted to be, and he wanted us to have a relationship with him once again. Now, again, I know, I know that we know these things, and this is just review time and time again. But, but how quickly do we forget that God is the one that had to pay the penalty for our salvation? I think. That, that Christians would hear that and say, I never forget that. Okay, but then how you live your life, are, are you showing that you really, really appreciate what God has done for you? Or are you showing that you are taking it for granted? That's really what I, I want to spend the rest of our time with th this evening. Because if it took the death of God to release us from the debt, our debt of death... Since that wrath has been satisfied and we can have that beautiful relationship with him, are we truly satisfied with that? And are we truly or have we truly uh, accepted the conditions that he has given to us so that that wrath can be satisfied? And that is the first question. There are too many people who read through the Bible and, and read the conditions, read the commandments and try to make excuses around them. Have you allowed the wrath on you to be satisfied through the cross on Calvary, Christ's cross? Because remember what Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to pick up your own cross. You've got to deny yourself. That only you've got to be put to death. And that only happens when you come into contact with that death. Now, people who hear that, of course, they say, of course, we understand that. I believe that. And I would preach that from the rooftops. 
Everyone says that. Everyone agrees with it when they hear that. But, but people, I think, take this for granted. When you have studies and you're reading through the Bible, you hear Christ's commands to be saved. But then we get to certain parts and we start changing how the applications we have to make. What does the Bible say? You need to repent of all the things that you need. Okay, repentance, yes. Of course I have to repent. But what that means really for me is just a, maybe a slow weaning off. I don't have to cut things off completely. I mean, I can, I can dabble in a few things. No, no, you've you got to cut it off completely. It's no more. What does death mean? It's no longer living in you. But Christ is. When people hear about uh, the, the command of baptism, especially, I know what Christ commands about baptism, but I think, I feel that really I'm okay with him because, because of, because of the, the, the way that I felt when, when, I, when I said certain things, the way that I felt when I was in this specific environment. Well, let me just say, you thought and you felt when you sinned against him. So we, we understand our thoughts, our intentions, our feelings, they're not the standard. They're not the guide. Because that's what got us into this mess in the first place. So we're not going to lean on our own wisdom. What are we going to lean on? What God has said. And when he gives us a command, a true disciple does it. We don't redefine those conditions. We don't redefine what that command means. We take it as God has said it. And we follow it. So... Just, just from that standpoint, are we just trying to change things? If we are, we're taking that cr cross for granted. Or we know what Christ's command is to be added to the church, but we're clinging to other loyalties. Well, I, I know that, that there is one church. And I know that, that there can't be many different paths. There can't be many different ways. Christ says, I am the way. And, and there are so many places that say, oh, yes, God sa Jesus says, I am the way. But, you know, we can have all different kinds of sects of Christianity, can't we? We can have all these different splits <laughs> where different places, different denominations completely disagree with one another. But, but we're all still part of that one way. As logical human beings, we understand that's, that just can't be the case. Because he is the way. Are we clinging to other loyalties because we're just not willing to let something go? Someone says, I see it plain as day in the Bible. But what this means is my family is lost if this is true. If I accept this, I have to come to grips with the reality that they are lost. I have to come to grips with the fact that the church that I went to before is unscriptural. I have to come to grips with the fact that this may cause division in my, with my friends and my family. And let me just pause for a second. I can sympathize with that, especially when it comes to family. I can sympathize probably better than a lot of people in this room, in fact. I understand how hard it is. I understand how depressing it is when you read these commandments, these beautiful commandments, and when you see people in your life that you, that you love and you see that they clearly are not following these things. And through their actions, they don't care about what God has to say. Therefore, they don't care about God. I understand that. And I'm not going to lie to you. That will cause division. It will cause strife. But I would just bring you back to 
what is, what is a better thing? To have God on your side and the whole world against you or the whole world on your side and God against you? I'll tell you, one side, there's no comfort. When you have God, even if the whole world is against you, what did, what did Elijah have to remember? I have victory with you. And I, I, he needed to pick himself back up and get back to business, get back to God's work. And I think sometimes we need to come to grips with that as well. God does not say, you don't have to follow me, you don't have to obey me, because, because I understand family ties, that means something. This family tie means more, and specifically the tie with him. And so, if, if this is me, if I'm not satisfied with what God is satisfied with, then his wrath is still on me. If I am not willing to let those things go, then that wrath cannot be satisfied until I truly submit myself to the cross. And so has it been satisfied in the first place? Secondly, have we rekindled that wrath? Now, some people would say, I know that you can't rekindle that wrath. If it's been paid at the cross, well, then, you know, you never have to worry again. And we talked about this in Bible class, so I don't want to rehash all the things that we said. But, but especially in Hebrews, I would encourage anyone who says that or anyone who thinks that, I always say, read through Hebrews. Because the Hebrew writer makes clear time and time again that's just not the case. And in fact, he makes it even, he emphasizes it when he talks about that blood that was shed, that sacrifice. Because now he says, yes, you were cleansed by that blood, and what are you doing now? You are trampling on it. That's what you're doing. Over in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, as Paul is writing to the church, or the Christians in Rome... And, and he's talking to them about exactly what commitment they have made when they entered into this covenant relationship with God. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, it's kind of in the middle of a thought. But he's speaking about baptism and how that is the way that we come into contact with his death and his resurrection. In verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Skip down to verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, and there's more that we could read, especially in this chapter, that just talks about this notion of being slaves of God or slaves of sin. Those are the only two options. But with regards to this question, are there tendencies, are there habits, are there sins of that old man that were supposed to be done away with when we did submit to the cross that day? Are there some of those habits and old sins that we've revived in this new life? Have we allowed that old man to kind of take the reins once again? As Paul, as Paul says, are you letting sin continue to be master over you? Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. We were saved from idolatry. We were saved from, from, from partying on the weekends. We were saved from pornography. We were saved from self-righteousness. We were saved from gossip. But if we return to these things, the sacrifice will be taken from us. 
I just bring it back to, to what we talked about in Hebrews, particularly Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. That blood that you are cleansed by, you are putting it to, putting it to shame. It's worse what I have done if I have become a Christian, done everything that he says to be his disciple, and then, and then completely downplay, degrade that precious blood that bought me. And ultimately trample it underfoot. If we return to those things of the old man, that's what we are doing. We take the cross for granted by doing those things. By doing the very things that ignited God's righteous wrath in the first place. So, do we need to put those things back where they belong in, in the grave? Because that may be me. I tell you one thing, and this is where we'll stop, but, but, but this I think is one of the hardest things. Have you allowed your emotions your personal grievances to be satisfied at the cross. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, I think that this is a particularly helpful passage because look at what he says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> he says, But now in Christ Jesus you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Clearly he's talking about this division between the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 15. How does he done that? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Now, Gentiles hear that, they're thinking, great, because we needed that. And maybe there were some that got too prideful and they needed to be brought low again. You were grafted in. But I'll tell you what, there were a lot of Jews that needed to hear this, maybe even more than some of the Gentiles, because the Jews had to be, who, who had tr not, not just said, we are God's only people. No one else gets to have that claim. They didn't just say those kinds of things. They had built a hatred for people that were not God's people. Now, to a degree, I think, especially in the Old Testament, you see moments where it's like they made good divisions because we're not going to be like those people. But then it kind of got away from that, and it just became about hating everyone who is not a Jew. Instead of thinking, well, if, if there's a Rahab amongst us, then we're going to graft them in. If there is... People like the tribe of the Gideonites, or Gibeonites, we're going we're to graft them in as well in Joshua, as you read about in Joshua. Now, the Jews had to be satisfied with Gentiles. They had to be satisfied with Samaritans. They had to be satisfied with tax collectors being just as pardoned by Christ's cross as they were themselves. <laughs> that would have been a tough pill to swallow for them. Why? Because they had built up in their minds so much, especially tax collectors. These were people who were traitors no way am I going to act like we have a relationship. I'm not going to act like we have any peace between us. I, I tell you what, we don't necessarily have that notion of Jews and Gentiles, but the Spirit is, is well and alive time and time again. You, you want to know what that looks like today? When, has someone hurt you? Has a Christian even hurt you? Are you, willing, are you willing to let that grievance, that personal offense go in the cross? 
And I'm, and I'm saying whether they come and ask for, for repentance, make confession and say, you know, I was wrong in this or not. Because you need to be. You need to be willing. I need to be willing to say, I'm not going to harbor hatred. In fact, I want them to come to the cross. But regardless of what happens, I am satisfied with the debt. I am satisfied with the wrath that was satisfied at the cross. I think some people show that they are not satisfied with that. With the same things that God is. Simply just by looking at another Christian, thinking about something that they said that, was, that may have been so unjust and been so wrong, and they say, nope, I don't care what they do, we will never have peace again. Because they said something too wrong. And, and I've had these conversations with brethren. There are going to be moments where Christians hurt you. There are going to, if it's happened before, it will happen again. You want to know why? Because, because we're fallible. Because we constantly make mistakes. I wish I could look at Paige in the eye and say, I will never do anything to hurt you ever again. Unfortunately, I can say that today and tomorrow. I get mad about something. I get angry. I forget that promise so easily. You will be hurt again. And by people that, that should know better. Are you willing to let that bitterness go when looking at the cross? I would say if you're not, then you're not satisfied with what God was. There was a man who came to a preacher a while ago. And, and, he, and I'll just be frank with you. He started talking about some things that had happened to him even with certain people that claimed to be Christians, claimed to be religious he had been abused and in the worst possible ways from a very young age by those very people. That's shocking. And that's terrible. That's something that should never happen. Completely unjust. And as he was talking to this preacher and really friend, he started just opening up more, not about what happened, but really about the emotions that he still had. Anger and bitterness. And he said, I'm, I'm really struggling because I, I don't know what to do with these emotions. Because on one degree, I know I need to have grace. And I know that I need to hope that they come to the cross, that they submit themselves and they make the, that good confession and they make their lives right. But at the same time, I, I want to know that they are going to have to, if not on earth, look God in the face and confess what they've done to me. And, and, and the whole time he just thought everything he felt was completely wrong. And the preachers looked at him and said, There's, you know, you don't necessarily have to feel bad about all of that. We should be satisfied in the fact that one day God's enemies will have to make that confession before him. And every wrong is going to be made right. The question is on whether or not you have a bad attitude. The question comes down to, are you willing to let those, that, that sense of justice go? Are you willing to let that anger go? Are you willing to desire that they make things right before that time comes, that they make their lives right at the cross, not in the judgment? Because that is the main question. If all we want is for people to face judgment, then we've taken it for granted. But there's nothing wrong with saying, at the cross... And the wrath that was satisfied there, 
and the wrath that God will give out to his enemies in the judgment. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm satisfied with that. Vengeance is mine, thus says the, thus says the Lord. But are you willing to let your bitterness go? Are you willing to let your hatred, maybe, go against a brother or a sister? We need to be. Because if we don't, we show that we've taken that moment for granted and that we ourselves are not fully satisfied with the salvation that we have been so graciously given by God. And so... As we conclude the lesson this evening, I would just ask, do you want the satisfaction that only comes from from the cross? There are lots of ways that people say you can get rid of guilt, you can get rid of shame. And there are lots of people that, that would try to give you promises and guarantees, but unfortunately there is none other than the one person who has put their money where their mouth is, given themselves, given their life, perfect life, specifically for you and specifically for me. There is no confidence. There is no assurance. Like giving ourselves, submitting in, in humble, righteous servant, servitude in the cross. Do you want that kind of confidence? Do you want that kind of satisfaction in God's grace, in God's mercy, and ultimately in his justice? You can have that tonight. If you're a Christian and you feel like you need the help of the brethren to let some of the things go that has been brought back from the old man, make that happen tonight. Use the brethren here. If you are not a Christian, you too can make things right this very evening. We have the tools. We have everything we need. There's water behind us. What hinders you from being baptized this very night? If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.